Hello, and welcome to the Lab Creative AI Podcast. Season 2, Episode 4. My name is John McCormick. I'm the Director of Lab, and joining me at the remote console this week, physicist, PhD researcher, and AI artist, Nina Rajic. Hey, Nina, how are you? Hey, John, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. And also this week, Lab Creative AI lecturer, Dr. Maria Teresa Yano. Hey, Teresa, how are you? Hi, John. Very well, thanks. We're all in, all three of us are in Melbourne, and we're just coming out of lockdown, so we're celebrating we're allowed to go out again um whereas i understand the situation in the northern hemisphere is slightly different and it's also a pleasure to welcome our special guest the man often described as the ace2 receptor of computational creativity in the spiky coronavirus of creative ai professor simon colton how are you simon i'm fine thank you great to be here Looking forward to an interesting chat and uh, you're you're coming to us live from spain where things are heading south for the dark winter in terms of Sadly, COVID. yeah, 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 we've gone back into a pretty strict lockdown and a curfew for the first time here, um, so that's fun. So we've just come out of a curfew uh, and, a, and a horrendous over hundred day lockdown, but we're very happy that today in Melbourne there were no cases at all. So great Good testament thing. to the power of lockdowns uh, uh, if you're willing to stick them out for long enough and you start early enough. There's been quite a bit happening since we last met in the world of creative AI, there's been a couple of really interesting conferences that have happened. So we're going to start by talking about them. The first one was ICCC, the International Conference on Computational Creativity. Now, this conference, as many people might know, is run every year. And it's normally, of course, like most conferences, run at a different city in Europe or the US or sometimes even in the Southern Hemisphere. But this year, after a couple of postponements, it was fully virtual. So like every conference in 2020, it's been virtual. So Teresa, uh, Simon and myself attended the conference or parts of the conference. What did everyone think of ICCC this year? Was it interesting? I I thought it was very good this year. Um, I was secretly rooting for it to do well as an online venue um, because uh, that might um, reduce my personal travel um, requirements each year. So, uh, and it worked incredibly well. Um, They spent a lot of cash from the registration fee on hiring professionals to kind of organize everything and uh, really radically change the format so that really there were no presentations during the technical sessions, just panel discussions, which could have gone horribly wrong. And I, I, I did worry about that because it's, it's, it has gone wrong in the past when it's all been panels, but we were expected to read the papers in advance and see the 10 minute presentations and 20 minute presentations in advance. And that might've been problematic for some people, but um, it meant that we were all well prepared for the, the panels and the panel chairs did a very good job of uh, really keeping the conversation going for the 30 minutes um, for each session Um, and it was really very lively very entertaining and uh, informative discussion Uh, and then at the end of the days and in in the coffee breaks there was a virtual taverna um, where you could go out and hang out and have a virtual beer with your virtual mates Uh, and even that worked really well and you kind of sidle up to someone in a kind of video game environment um, as if you're you know a game character and then their faces appear on screen and if you edge away from them the faces kind of fade out and it uh, that meant we could have actual proper chats about covid obviously um, as well as computational creativity and, and the rest so this virtual taverna i didn't visit the virtual taverna but um you, you couldn't see the face of the person until you went up to them so what if you went up to the person and it was someone you didn't want to speak to did you just quickly move away i mean that, as as in a normal 
social situation yeah yeah um, well in and, the normal social situation you avoid the person from a long way across you, the room you right? can they, their characters have a, um have their names above them um, ah, okay long before you get close enough for their face to appear so you can and, and you could definitely see people kind of taking long ways around the tables to to make sure they didn't get cornered by a particular um person and then there were little cliques being formed it was it was you know as close as you're going to get um with current technology to a real life social situation with all of the bad aspects as well as the good aspects. Uh, and I, I find myself having a real beer in my living room, feeling at least in part that I was actually in Coimbra uh, in Portugal, where the conference was meant to be, and enjoying, you know, catching up with old friends that I've been going to conferences with for like 20, 25 years. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. I actually didn't go to a taberna either. My experience was a little bit different because we were in the other side of the world. So it, it, it was mostly at night and there were so many things uh, related to that, like my children waking up in the middle of the talks and <laughs> I have to move and, and just go and, and attend to them. But yeah, no, I think also it was very interesting that there was a lot of anticipation about you know, how it was going to be. We prepared these talks and were there going to be questions about it? Would people watch them actually? But I think it was handled very well. The platform was really allowed to be like really organized and, and very clear how the format was going to be. And yeah, I agree. It was a, an interesting and, and, and a success, I would say, the way it was handled. In terms of the program, it was remarkably diverse. The the submissions went through the roof this year, um, remarkably. Um, and this, most of them were pre-pandemic. Well, the, the work was done pre-pandemic and the submissions were largely done um, before the kind of European lockdown happened. And they had um, nearly 200 submissions across the long, short and workshop papers. And when I organized a conference in 2014, we only got about 55. So nearly a four time, fourfold increase in interest, let's say, in this conference. Uh, and you can see that reflected in the program. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I wrote down some of the, you know, kind of the, the very diverse set of things which were looked at just in the applications alone. Mm -hmm. um, normally, mm -hmm. the kind of old classics of poetry generation, visual arts, music generation but this year we had all sorts we had um i'm going to read them out rapping with a human human robot battles in rapping lyric transformation improv theater dance movement generation bereavement support which um was in the session that i chaired and that was very interesting how you can use competition creativity to help people write songs and um, to help them express their grief six word story generation visual diaries generative cinema typesetting architecture dialect adaptation in finnish Dialogue, which is what um, Ollie and Kaz from uh, colleagues in Sydney brought in. Uh, creative problem solving. And then finally, text to emoji translation. So if you ever want to translate your text into pure emojis, and um, there's now a paper on that. And so, and, that, I, and on top of that, there were the usual kind of classical studies. So I was just reading these down this morning. I was really surprised on how it's flourished, the kind of interest um, beyond the traditional domain. When you were talking about bereavement and things, I was just thinking mm. a great application, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, but for computational creativity would be to help you write cards. You know, when you have to write a card for someone mm. and often you kind of think, well, what should I, you know, what should I say? And you want it, want it to be kind of meaningful and, and interesting and, you know, but I, I think if you had uh, some kind of program to help you do that, it could be really interesting. I'm surprised yeah, someone's done that. You want to be witty, don't you? But you can't actually think of anything good to say. So it's always best of luck, you know, yeah. smiley face. Yeah. <laughs> you were here for 20 years. It's 
I hardly remember who you are, but good luck in your next job. And, you know, it doesn't really go down well. The, the bereavement support one was in my session as well. Um, mm. And um, I was really impressed by the way that Maya Ackerman has done on this, helped by our colleague, Alison Pease, who the three of us have co-opted with this year. Um, and Maya has this as an app that you can get on the app store. It's very well produced and polished. And I'm, I'm producing an app, so I've asking Maya all about that process and the, the trials and tribulations. So it was. It seemed like a level above kind of effort we go to in computational creativity to get a research platform out there. But in the in the panel session, I brought up the question of trust. Um, it's a big deal in computational creativity if you trust the software that you're interacting with. And of course, that's a big deal in bereavement support. And I was wondering whether there are any kind of failures of trust when the software suggests lyrics, which are just highly inappropriate given that someone's just died. But Maya was basically saying that that doesn't happen very often and people accept the fact that this is generative. Um, and there's, it's a bit like the fictional pact that Teresa and I looked at when we were doing the What If Machine project, that when you open a book about vampires, you've, you've made a pact with the book or with the author that um, you are going to accept this world as it is. There's a kind of generative pact where you accept the fact that the software doesn't mean any harm if it says something which is inappropriate. So that was, that was a fascinating discussion. So um, how does the um, app, the bereavement app work? It, it's not a bereavement app. It's an app with which you can uh, generate lyrics and music and stitch it all together and make songs. Um, and then in a study with the co-author of the paper, um, Maya studied how people can express their grief with the app and, and whether that is therapeutic or not. The general consensus was it was very useful. It seems like an interesting area to get into. Completely left field from my perspective. I wasn't expecting to be talking about funerals, uh, etc. In in the session that I that I chaired. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, and it relates a bit to something that we have been talking in in music about people that don't know how to uh, play, you know, an instrument. But if we have the technology, for instance, a, a, a musical system that people can, you know, start learning to play with and they can improvise with and, you know, they don't feel judged by this um, system. Whereas if they play with another person, another musician, for instance, they may feel shy, they may, you know, make, don't really explore as much. And it feels a bit related in the sense that can, I can think of maybe people who are having this process of, you know, lost and sadness. And, and I know for experience with some friends that have lost people in family members in this in the situation of the COVID that they don't want to really talk to to people. Uh, but they, mm -hmm. they in some way may need some way of confronting that. Yeah, some way of passing through, through that process with some Something else, maybe, like a, a, a system. It goes back to the early days of Eliza and um, Feigenbaum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Surprised that people were more willing to talk to a, a very simple program which just parroted what they said um, than they were to talk to a um, real psychotherapist. I learned just recently about this uh, app. It's kind of more of like a startup, but uh, it's basically like an AI kind of like best friend and people, I think it's called Replica. And people have started now to, I mean, from what the CEO said, people have actually formed like romantic relationships with it because you can actually create like the kind of avatar and like edit it the way you want. And they're even looking into like AR, like getting it into AR basically, like through your phone. So you can actually go into the real world and spend time with your replica. But it's really interesting to see it, like just hearing a little bit about how people can i don't know get so much meaning from it knowing full well what it actually is but mm -hmm. yeah the, the technology is definitely i think advanced enough now to definitely at least have the fantasy or like the illusion 
you know, and actually I think I can see, I definitely see it's super, it can be super helpful in that way. It's like the sequel of Blade Runner. You know, he, he has that, he has that avatar, the woman who is, he's kind of in a relationship with who doesn't really exist. Who's an AI and her, of course, which we've talked mm. about before, but yeah. I, it, it is kind of curious though, how I think it's not so much to do with trust. I think it's, it's got to do with two things. One is that, because you're talking to a machine, it doesn't judge. So it won't, yeah. you know, so you don't feel like you're, or that if you confide in the machine that it's somehow private, you know, because the machine's not going to gossip to anyone else. Yeah. But also I think because it's not responding in a human way, it's kind of more like a listener. Like the thing about Eliza was, as someone said, it did just repeat a lot of stuff back to you, but it would put it in a question form. So it was just kind of parroting really what you'd, you'd said to it, but it was reversing what you told it into a question to kind of make you think about it in mm. a different way. I, I, it's kind of a very interesting ethical and moral, particularly when you're starting to talk about something like an app that helps people deal with bereavement and grief, which was traditionally the role of in religions and things like that. There's like, that was the role of a, of a priest, for example, to help people deal with, with grief. And now if we're turning to machines to do that or to AI to do that, it's kind of interesting to think about the ethical and just the, the way it might change society, if people are only willing to confide in an AI and not willing to confide in other people, does that mean people will become less connected, I wonder? Food for thought. All right, let's, <laughs> let's move on because we've got lots, lots else to talk about. So another thing at IEEE with the workshops and yeah. we, Teresa and I were at the co-creation workshop. Future of really Co-Creative Systems. Future of Co-Creative Systems workshop, which was really interesting. We spent a lot of time on Miro boards and... They had breakout groups that were localised to a country, so it was kind of more time zone friendly. I actually thought it was quite fun. What did you think, Teresa? Yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah. thought it was it was different, you know, to the normal uh, format of the workshops, you know, in which you sit and you listen to the talks. Here we have to uh, listen to the talks previously. We uh, we have one um, session in which we it was like a debrief in some way, and we got to talk about the the, the, the specific uh, topics of the of the workshop. But then it was handsome. And, and yeah, that was nice because we got to actually work in some way on, 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 the, on the topic. And there will be, a, a, I think, a series of, series of journals that we will write from that. From Journal that. papers, yeah, that have come out of it. And they will mm. be the, it will come out from the mirror discussion. So that's really, really useful. I think it was really good. It sparked a lot of discussion. And yeah. I think overall, the consensus was that the organizers handled the whole virtual event pretty well, yeah. given the the limitations of any kind of virtual event, particularly if you're in the Southern Hemisphere in a, uh, you know, the time zone that no one else is in, it's pretty hard. But I just wanted to mention a couple more things about the conference. One was the encroachment of deep learning. Encroachment is the wrong word. I, I very much welcomed it. Um, far more papers this year using that as a technique and beginning to see researchers from Google Brain and MIT Media Labs, that kind of place where deep learning is, is the norm. Uh, coming along to this conference. And the, the speculation was that um, generative deep learning now is so big that it's difficult to get papers into NeurIPS and HKI and AAAI. And so there's an overflow onto the smaller conferences like IEEC, uh, which is very welcome because many of the papers are very good. Uh, and again, in my session that I chaired, I, I raised this, this question. There's this, this old joke about um, a million dollar research project where um, there's a huge amount of computation to be undertaken. And um, the researchers choose to take 
the first 18 months off, spend half the money on a massive holiday in the Bahamas, and then they come back after 18 months and Moore's Law has kicked in, they can spend half the money and do it in half the time, uh, and, and they get to the end and have a great holiday. And so I raised this question with one of the deep learning researchers in my session, which is surely the first port of call now, for, if he was doing a narrative generation, um, narrative art generation, and I said, surely you should try, and the first question should be, can GPT-3 do this? And I would, uh, I lamented with, um, with Teresa last week that maybe the entirety of our, you know, 2 million euro WIM project could have been done by GPT-3 now, because... It, it can surely do fictional ideation. Um, I mean, the answer that the guy gave in this session was more upbeat, that there's various reasons why GPT-3 couldn't do this and there's still needs for different generative technologies. Um, but I'm not so sure. I, anything I do in generative text from now on, I'm going to first of all ask whether, you know, one of these big models. And then I'll ask myself, well, should I just wait for GPT-4? Um, <laughs> and uh, so we're back in the kind of Moore's law. Is there going to be a Moore's law for computational creativity? Um, as the model size gets bigger and the effectiveness of the, of the models gets um, better and better. Maybe it's best just to wait um, for these things to come out. And there'll be these big blockbuster events every year, a big unveiling of this new model from NVIDIA or from Microsoft. I think won't they run out of human text to train it on? They're basically training it on the entire internet, aren't they? So they'll, they'll, well, be... they'll start... Next will be dialogue, I suppose. There's lots of people talking right now, um, and that's text that they could be using. Um, there's um, there's probably more words out there than have been written down. So, yeah, I, I don't know. You, you may well be right that there's a physical limitation or a, a real limitation there. Uh, the last thing to mention was that we won the best paper prize. I, I can't help, but, you know, there are three of us here were co-authors along with um, Christine Gockersberger and Alison Pease. Um, and that was nice because of all this application work, the best paper award went to something which was highly philosophical and highly um, theoretical about the machine condition. What does it mean to be a machine and can machines express that through creativity? Um, and it was taken very seriously, which uh, was great because when I first pitched this idea at the Sensi Lab, almost a year ago now it wasn't taken quite so seriously Let, let's face it that oh, was it was taken seriously so it was definitely <laughs> taken seriously hmm. um and and so it kind of it, it didn't set me back but it kind of made my resolve um harder and i needed to work a lot harder after coming out of sensor lab and then it got a real kicking from christian guckelsberger i don't know whether you guys know christian but he's a very hardcore um formal philosopher stroke computational creativity researcher and he really really laid into it and made it a lot better as well. And I kind of, this bedraggled paper got over the line, eventually was, you know, was, was really good as, as a result of this feedback. Um, and it's gonna, you know, fuel the, the future of my research um, over the next few years, I'm sure. Can we now do this in, in reality? Can we get software to record what happens to it in life and uh, express that through its creativity in the future? And uh, overlaps a lot with um, Teresa's paper on explainable computational creativity. How did that go down, Teresa? Did you get some good feedback on that from the conference? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it was very limited to the panel session, right? So uh, because we were, I think, four, four different papers being discussed yeah. in half an hour, we it was very difficult to get many questions, of course. But yeah, I think it was it was very good. We got some good feedback, some good questions about, you know, what is missing for you know systems to explain it all for what, what is it that it takes this it was yeah it was really good and i saw a lot of overlap with the work of ollie Bound and kaz grace um in yeah. As well yeah, as 
Yeah, definitely there is some overlap with that because they are working on uh, dialogue, you know, between co-creative systems also. And th there is an overlap there, I guess, with uh, explainable computational creativity is something that that that's the concept is pushing is the idea of actually the machine taking a more active role, kind of trying to push a bit uh, and defend the idea so that, you know, they are taking seriously. Not, uh, not taking control, of course, from, from the user, from the human, but just in order to, you know, really elaborate on them, on, on the ideas that are, that are created by a generative system and actually improve of them because it's, it's more like a cycle of, you know, feedback and the way we humans collaborate in some way. Final quick shout out for the casual creativity, casual creative workshop. Um, that I went to while you guys were at the other one. Um, really great community feel. Um, my first introduction to Discord, so I feel like a cool kid now. Really great papers. Um, one which stood out was Ganimals. There's a website, if you just Google for Ganimals, um, then there's a website where you can kind of mash together images of animals and it, and it sparks the uh, imagination, uh, which is a really very good paper. Coming out of the MIT Media Lab. So it's great to see those guys getting involved in kind of more computational creativity end of, of research. That's great. So I think all of the papers that we're involved with and the presentations are on the Sensi Lab website. So if you're interested in reading them or looking at the talks or anything, they're all there. And I think um, IEEC are going to release a lot of the videos eventually, Simon, are they? Or Yes, not? if they've not done so already, there's a YouTube channel for IEEC. Mm. I haven't checked it out, but I'm, I'm sure it will be um, full of the videos soon. That's great. So the other big conference that was on over the last couple of months was the Ars Electronica Festival. And again, this was always going to be a real conference in a real location and eventually it got turned into a virtual conference with a real location as well. The theme was in Kepler's garden, so they'd moved it to uh, Johannes Kepler University in Linz, and, but it was kind of pitched as a worldwide virtual event. So I went along to a couple of the sessions and I have to say it wasn't the same as being at the festival. I think maybe one of the differences or subtle differences between a festival and a conference is a festival, it's a very social event. So it's not just people who work in the area, it's the whole community of Linz comes along and you're kind of in, embedded in the town and the whole town kind of becomes part of the festival. And of course that wasn't, that didn't happen this year. So it was really just left to listening to the speakers and looking at the artworks and the panel sessions and so on. And they were, you know, up to the usual standard. They were all really sort of timely and interesting. The big point of discussion was what are the positives in an age of uncertainty? There was a fair bit of creative AI there. We Just before we started recording, we were talking about uh, Mario Klingerman's work, which I think got an honorary mention, that uses, surprise, surprise, GPT-2. So he must have taken your advice, Simon, and not bothered to mm. invent his own text generation okay. system. Uh, and just gone with the the gold standard. Did anyone else go to any of the Aslik Jodinger events? It's just me. Okay, so I, I could give a big monologue for hours, but probably not a good idea. My sort of takeaway was there's still really interesting works out there, but I guess Aslik Jodinger is in a way a retrospective of the work that was made the year before, um, because by the time people submit work to the like the pre and everything, and it gets judged and that finally gets exhibited, it is about a year before. So we're really seeing the works that were made pre-pandemic. I think what's going to be really interesting is Ars Electronica next year, when it will be all of the works that were made and submitted in the pandemic and to see if they've changed in any way or if people have really been affected. I didn't find many of the discussions about the sort of 
the way that art can save people in a pandemic to be that compelling or that interesting, but that was just me. With Ars Electronica, I've never been, but I always thought it was a huge spectacle um, and always been a little bit critical that it's not as deep as I would like it to, to be. Um, but the spectacle yeah. aspect, I was wondering whether that kind of held up in the virtual world, um, because you, you're in spaces with amazing artworks, uh, really immersive, you know, built to for that particular purpose. And many of the artworks, in my opinion, are kind of not really conveying any particular message, but other than the kind of shock of the new and, and amazing technology. And I wondered how that held up in the kind of uh, virtual presentation. Yeah, good question. Well, I'm not I'm not sure if I'd completely agree with that description. I mean, they're not all spectacle. I see what I know what I know where you're coming from. And yes, a lot of that art technology work is very much about the sort of the, the sort of showy aspect of it or the the you know the focus on technology. You didn't get that sense this year because most of the works were presented. They had lots of cities involved presenting one or two works and then it, it was actually quite they had four channels running simultaneously. So there was more I mean, it was in one way even more overwhelming than the physical festival mm. because it was just like, what channel do I watch? And did I miss something that I should have been watching on the other channel or whatever? So, yes, yeah, certainly you missed out on that sort of... I think the thing for me was just more the the physical volume of having so much stuff, to, which is really quite esoteric and, and really out, it's kind of outside of mainstream art in a way, um, all under the one roof. It's just, you know, the kind of sheer magnitude of it, the sublimity of seeing so much at the one venue does, I think that's what you mean by spectacle, Simon. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so that was missing. So, of course, yes, it wasn't It wasn't as good. I think particularly for a festival that focuses on sensory experience, music, sound, vision, kinesthetics, all those kinds of things, that was really missing in the virtual presentation I, I do disagree with the, the lack of depth though I mean it's not an academic conference so it's not technical yeah but I always find the discussions really provocative they're not all uniformly fantastic many people criticize that all of the issues that they don't cover like climate change is a big one which is always discussed it's always you know part of it there's a lot of emphasis there's this whole thing on digital humanism so readdressing the kind of social impact of technology which tends to get you know, never mentioned at technical conferences. So, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any lack of depth there. It's just that the the emphasis is perhaps different than you would find at an academic conference. But I also find that quite refreshing. And it's there are a lot of academics who attend, a lot of artists who attend, a lot of you know writers and theorists. And I think it is that diversity of thinking of different backgrounds, not all people being purely technologists, that makes it interesting as well. It's nice. Do you have any favourites? Any standouts? Standout works. Mm. Yeah, it's like every year. There's just a. I mean, there's a. There's a lot of kind of bio art. There's a lot of art that's really questioning technology. I think one thing that I found disappointing was that no Australian work won a, a honorary mention or award or anything in the pre this year. I can't remember if last year if there was. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying that Australia should be in every year, but there wasn't anything in the art and technology space from Australians. I thought that was really a strong a strong presence there i mean there was a lot going on so maybe there's something that i missed do you think um ours electronic will be a good venue for you in the future yeah absolutely i mean from what i've heard it seems really interesting i think i just want to attend first of all mm. it seems great so definitely i like that kind of the festival style as opposed to the conference kind of traditional conference style not that i've been to many conferences but i think maybe yeah i think maybe yeah i think that is that's the key point is that it's a festival and it's something that academic conferences could do if they 
if they wanted to, you know, um, rather than just being for the pure dissemination of academic writing. I think particularly those kinds of conferences that are hybrid, hybrids of different disciplines that focus on, you know, things like creativity, technology, culture, those kinds of things can really benefit from having a more of a festival program. It's much more ambitious. It's much harder to put on. I mean, Ars Electronica has been going for 30, 30, 40 years or something. It's a long time and they get lots of money from the local government. It's a big income earner or it was until this year was a big income earner for tourism and all those kinds of things. So it's a very different equation than a than purely an academic conference. You know, there's room for both. So I think that, sure. that's really interesting. So yeah. a couple of other conferences that have been on that we don't really have much to report at because we, we did have some papers in them, but we didn't really go was ISEA, which I think again was all virtual, the International Symposium on Electronic Art. I know there was some AI, some creative AI work presented there, but again, because it was virtual and because it's a kind of sensorial experience for a lot of these art and technology works, it was not, not really the same as being there physically. So uh, the, other, the other big news that we wanted to, or not big news, but interesting thing that's happened since we last got together was The Guardian published an article that was written by GPT-3 and it was, um, you know, kind of tagged under the headline that an AI wrote this article and with a sort of veiled, implicit veiled threat that, you know, journalists could be out of work because AI is going to write all the stories and, you know, could it even ideate fiction or, or true stories or, or whatever? What did everyone think about this? I, I tried to get interest in this at the, at the conference because it came out just a few days before the IEEC conference, uh, mm. but no one really kind of took the bait. I mean, I think these milestones are coming thick and fast now for what I'm going to call computational creativity because not that the Guardian think of it like that, but um, these things would have been amazing five years ago and now they're beginning to become a bit more routine. And so I don't want to downplay the, the kind of uh, amazing achievement of uh, GPT-3 and the team who created that in producing enough good quality text for it to stand as something of interest in, in the Guardian. That said, I mean, it suffers from the usual problems of GPT-3, that when you actually um, drill down into what it's saying, it's a large part of it is, or many instances where it's just kind of not really sensible. It hasn't really remembered what it previously said. It hasn't really uh, quite got the logical conclusion from the thing it previously said. Um, and suffers from all the uh, the usual things that Gary Marcus in on Twitter is famous now for criticizing it. That said, um, I you know I think this is a you know a major achievement. What for me was really interesting. This is what I tried to get the conference delegates talking about was the fact that we've been discussing this kind of thing happening for ten years easily. And my personal situation, my personal thinking on this is that it will force the question of what do we want our articles to be written by, um, by a machine. Um, and my you know, strong impression is that, yes, GPT-3 will be able to take a subject like the upcoming presidential election and write a decent article about it. Um, but when we read that article, we want it to come from a person who has a history, who has a life story um, to uh, back this up, who has opinions, who has skin in the game, you know, and if Trump gets in or Biden gets in, this person is affected by where GPT-3 won't be. And, I, and we have been discussing this in the field, but we've never really kind of been at the stage where it's a, it's a reality. And so the Guardian article brought that reality a bit closer, where we're going to have to make up our mind on whether we want computer creations in our lives without all of this backstory 
without all this authenticity, which is uh, the, sort of the precursor to the, um, the paper on, on the machine condition. And of course, my line will be, we will want it more um, when the machines themselves have a backstory, when they have a life, uh, a context, which is more interesting um, in which to present these articles. But I'm getting on my, my you know, well, I have a question kind of tangentially related and about the machine condition, but I, I don't want to just completely derail the entire episode because the, the Guardian article is, was written from that perspective of the robot, right? And that's kind the of AI, what yeah. the AI pretty much all the way through. And that's kind of what you talk a lot about, Simon, when we had our arguments in the lab about the coming from, you know, like the actual experience of the, you know what I mean? Like that not writing as if it was sure. a human. It was a nice bit of kind of um, trompe l'oeil, perhaps, to use an art term. It, it d- didn't ring true because the, the, it, it doesn't have the life of a robot. GPT-3 is this vast neural network which has been trained on the, almost the entirety of human existence. Text all about people doing people things. It's not, the, the, the text it's trained on is not about robots doing robot things. Yeah, but it did, it did speak from the first person. And I think it was asked the question about, you know, what is it like you know, from an AI's perspective to, or should we, be, should we be fearful of AI? And it spoke as though it was an AI and in the first person. So I mean, and it, it is, is. It, is. Yeah. It, it is, it is an and, AI. <laughs> Yeah, and it I know, did, but yeah. it, it, it's not my kind of AI, let's, let's say. <laughs> oh, um, it, it's like your kind of AI. Well, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't had any life experiences, so it doesn't have the authenticity. Well, no, it's, of, had, it's had lots of linguistic experience. But it hasn't recorded any of them. Um, so what it's, it's recorded it, in its neural network. Yeah, all the weights. No, no. All the in its neural network is recorded from, you know, the, the weights are not recorded from what it's generated. It, you know, Mario Klinkman's done a lot of work with it. So if... GPT-3 was fed back the experience it had with Mario Klingemann, including the output that it produced um, and, and the interaction that it had with that person. Um, and then that changed its neural network. And then that was used in future generative tasks. Then that would begin to get close to what I'm interested in. Uh, and then maybe it will have more authenticity. The thing is, it, it isn't an, an, an AI system yet, which is changing the world. It's talking about that in the kind of future tense, really. Not that it uses a few chance, but it, it's not yet that AI system that people should be worried about. When it is, and, when it, uh, and has been shown to be effective at that, then maybe it will begin to be more authentic. So, but I, I do get your point that it, you know, it did kind of feel like it was expressing the machine condition, but it doesn't yet have the life experiences that the machine condition, as we kind of put it, and I, and I mean we. Uh, yes, um, all our names are on the paper. Whether you like it or not, um, then you know it's not quite the life experience um, and the life history that we were talking about in that paper, anyway. I think another aspect that is important about it is that this wasn't really a solo effort of the AI. You know, mm. if you go all the way down the final, the, the end of the article, you see that actually there were people curating the output. They ran the algorithm many times. Uh, the whole article is not like it was an output of the of the system. It was many different pieces, yep. different fronts. So, so this is not really a solo effort uh, as well. well and I the, think that's important to say. The chat on Twitter afterwards, and maybe even in the Garden article somewhere, was that this is not that different to the usual editorial process. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's exactly like that, and they don't take whole chunks. There's a lot of editing going into it. Um, so they they were kind of defending it from that you know, point of view that it's not 
not unusual for people to be edited quite as strongly as that as well. But um, yeah, I, I agree that there was a lot of human creation went into that. But, uh, but the Guardian were honest about that. Um, yeah, that, no, that definitely. And I don't see any problem about that. I think that's, that's actually the way I see it. And this is the kind of way, the, the kind of vision that I have both for explainable computational creativity. And it's the idea that it's an effort between the human co-creator and the machine co-creating together. And they, there is this feedback, uh, this loop between, you know, uh, giving um, the idea like this, or I like this better. Could we do more about, about this, more something related to this? So it's, it's, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing that. Actually, I think that's, that's the way I see it. A future system which has explainable creativity that you've written, Teresa, will basically say, no, you can't take that bit. And no, choose this bit. Okay, okay, I'll rewrite that for you. So would kind of push back on the editorial process and say, you know, I'm not just passively going to sit here and let you chop and change bits to fit your narrative. I'm going to make but sure. But that's what that's what own. real human writers have to put up with if they submit an article. It gets edited by an editor. They usually don't have a say in what gets chopped or what gets uh, true in, yeah. included. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think I think a, a future system that I could, that would write it would try to put emphasis on things that believes to be good, but it wouldn't take the control. So I think the consensus is it was a valiant attempt, but uh, yeah. I don't think journalists are in trouble. Yeah. No, Although I do, I, I do. One thing I did think was that you know, just going back to what you were saying, Simon. You know, there's this whole thing about bias in the in the media. People pushing a certain line. People having opinions. And of course, you read. The opinions of journalists who you you know you value their opinion but if you're just after factual reporting i i know this might sound crazy but would it could you trust an ai to give you unbiased reporting like if it's reporting on the u.s election it's not giving it an opinion about something it's just saying well you know because it's got this kind of access to all of this information if they're talking about presidential debates you know trump in 1995 said this and here's an exact transcript that i pulled up you know, that I've found and the, you know, the AI can kind of find all this stuff and orient it into a story about the debate. And it kind of gives you a very, not a human perspective necessarily, but an AI's perspective, which might That's help. That's already out there. Um, I mean, at the time of the What If Machine project, which is, you know, ended three or four years ago now, there was a, a few companies set up to do automatic generation of text for, for newspapers or for articles, online articles yeah. um, and for clickbait articles. Um, as well, um, which will basically take the latest baseball scores and massage them into a an interesting, well, as far as baseball scores go, text about last night's games um, in the, in a way that a, a person would normally be employed to do that. So basically, factual, not really giving any um, opinions about it. You know, this has got as far as commercial level. So, and I think you can trust it to do that. Um, but of course, you're subject to the same problem as as the, the bias and the data. And so when, if it reported, let's say it was reporting on President Trump's inauguration and all the millions of people who turned out for that, if it gets its data from the White House website, there'll be hundreds of thousands of people there. If it gets its data from the New York Times, there would be tens of thousands of people there. Um, so it will still, you know, there's still issues of, of data and bias. Uh, I think which is what you're highlighting. But I guess it could it could explain the source of that information. I mean, I'm I'm speculating a bit. Maybe it's not a good idea to let AIs tell you your news. I mean, I, I think lots of stuff, especially online articles, are already written automatically, but they don't. Wait, there's no signal coming down to about it anymore. Do you know that? Are you suspecting that? 
I'm oh, suspecting just, that. No, there um, are no a lot of financial news is generated by AIs because oh, yeah. it's just it's reporting on it's really easy to do because it's just reporting on what stock went up and what stock went down and who right. sold what. So right. it's interesting that it is that kind of factual information where opinion isn't required is that where it seems to be making well, the you most want, you want a life story behind your opinion, which you know, I'm not gonna labor that point, but mm. opinion you know really have to come from a personality. Um, otherwise, they're not really opinions, perhaps. I mean, I wouldn't. Say, I mean, I feel like the it is kind of a problem now with the news, and I wouldn't really say it's opinion, but it's more the agenda of the news source or the journalist, right? I don't even do it. So I feel like that the the idea that we need an opinion, like the human opinion, isn't so important as the fact that it's so hard to discern what's you know and what's true and what's the agenda behind the person writing it. So I think something that like an AI that kind of collated all of these sources and somehow all of the bias like or not just say left and right balanced out somehow it's almost like that's that seems much better to me than the situation we have now which is quite awful but it's often called opinion and analysis and i guess it's the analysis part that you're really interested in well I'm, i mean i don't read a lot of opinion pieces in, in newspapers because i i just don't find them that interesting but the analysis ones i think are more interesting for me and so what i'm after is more a factual analysis or something so then i can form my own opinion about yeah. something rather than hearing someone else's opinion of something. And, and maybe that's an area where. Yeah, there are definitely too many opinions. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's lots of potency in the age of social media. It used to be that if you got yourself on the Friday night shows as a presidential candidate, you know, at the right time, you'd be able to sway public opinion. But now mm. Facebook just target individual people with hate text or fear text, which changes loads more people's mind than an interview with, uh, Jerry Springer. I'm not sure yeah. why Jerry Springer. <laughs> so you know the usual night show host. It, it, and, and opinions in like newspaper articles don't really change that people, many people's opinions anymore. No, no. All right, let's move on to the last topic that we wanted to talk about, and that's the state of creative AI in 2020. So it feels to me, at least, like things have stagnated a bit, and maybe this is just because of the situation of COVID this year that stopped a lot of gallery exhibitions and things, but. What does everyone else think about this? Is has creative AI progressed as much this year as it has in the past, or are we reaching, or have we reached peak creative AI maybe last year? I, I might, you know, stick my neck out here and say maybe we're at the start of a second wave. When second wave? Dying. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, like Spain? Sorry, terrible. Like Europe? Yeah. Uh, not of the virus, but of, of creative AI. Where I mean, this sounds arrogant, but perhaps we're more um, seasoned practitioners are getting into the affray with deep learning. There, there's so much gatekeeping with deep learning that it's, someone like me, I mean, 25 years computing professional, I really struggle to get, to train a neural network um, just to get PyTorch to work uh, and then uh, TensorFlow. It's a huge hurdle for someone who's got a full-time job. And, and but I was able to because of my job, but um, it took me months and that's a big hurdle. And the, the, these, this learning curve is, is flattening to use another COVID analogy. We'll, we'll find that more people like me are able to use deep learning in their, in their practice or in their, um, in their research. And I mean, again, this sounds arrogant, but we've got the experience of, of AI being generative out there in, in cultural domains like the visual arts. Uh, like in, in classical music and so forth. And I, I think that maybe as more and more people like, uh, like me and uh, you, John, are able to have direct access to deep learning, that we'll, we'll start seeing less of the kind of, gee whiz, isn't this amazing 
and more of a kind of nuanced look at how this can alter the arts. Just to give you one very simple example, I'm doing style transfer at the moment. Neural style transfer has been out there for five or six years. Um, it's very good. And what it does is amazing. I've read maybe 20 papers and I know there's more like 200. No one has ever bothered to blend these as far as I can see. I, I, mean, I mean, just graphics compositing. If you can't do it by training a model, then it can't be done is, is the kind of attitude that I've seen so often. And I, and I respect that. They're trying to, they're looking at general intelligence. They're looking at ways in which to do, you know, one approach to doing everything. But that just isn't as effective as as taking the best bits of graphics, other areas of AI. Um, so I'm using an evolutionary approach to find blends, graphics blends of style transfers to improve the, the process. And it, it just feels like now, I, now I'm on top of deep learning, I can do that. And nobody's bothered to do that before because it's been very deep learning centric. So maybe that's you know, something to look forward to. And I, I don't know whether the things have stagnated, but um, I'm hoping that more and more people who have We'll, we'll just start to use it as another general technique in their in their toolbox. Nina, what have you found this year that's piqued your interest in creative AI? Anything? I mean, I mean, maybe it's just my news feed, but I feel like I haven't really been exposed to much new content. And I'm just thinking, I mean, I, I guess you can't really know whether what's really happening outside of that, like that, your particular news feed, but maybe it's something to do with the fact that, I don't know, I feel like a lot of the creative AI work, obviously I'm in the field, so I like it, but a lot of the works are kind of, I mean, obviously they're very, they can be very human, right? They can, they can be, but I think a lot of them are missing that sometimes. And, and maybe the fact that we're going through something so human, like bodily pandemic and like sickness and all, like all of these things, it's not really, maybe creative eye is not the best medium for kind of artworks that, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, you want something more that like will connect people, right? Or make you feel less isolated. And I'm not sure. I think there is potential there, but maybe that's why we've seen like, so in other areas and, even outside art, things have actually, you know, gotten much more popular. Like there's been a lot of content generated, right? Mm. So uh, maybe it's just the timing is kind of wrong for it. I mean, we were definitely talking about a year ago in the podcast, whether the whole GAN thing was just this big hyped, hyped phase or bubble. And I mean, that could be happening as well. Yeah, if I think about the images of this year that have really stuck with me, there's one of a, I think it's an NHS nurse. It's on a, it's a piece of street art heroic looking nurse just like she's treating someone which is kind of iconic of the time I guess and it does seem to be that those things that connect people because we've had so little human connection that maybe this whole kind of AI GAN art movement was great when people could go to galleries and pontificate about machine intelligence and all that kind of stuff but it doesn't seem so relevant in the time in the unusual times that we're living in and maybe when we get out of those times and go back to normality it might it might change. I don't know. Yeah, my, my guess will be that creative AI is, is progressing, um, but um, it's a big news year with a, with a pandemic and a presidential yeah. election. And really creative AI has been fueled by press interest and commercial interest. And I, it's just not getting the airtime. So maybe there are some great projects out there which we're not hearing about. I'm hearing as much on Twitter where you get it kind of direct from the horse's mouth mm. that I, as I have been previously. And I, I think a, another trend will be generative wars that we have ahead of us. Because generative machine learning is the kind of sexy end, the cool end, um, companies are now using that as a promotional tool. So in, you know, if you think about StyleGAN and the, the face generation, that served the purpose of, of advertising for NVIDIA. Um, and their sales went up through the roof as a result of that. And it was, it was scientific publishing as, as advertising. 
Um, and I think um, more and more we're going to see the big companies realizing that generating cool things is a way of promoting their brand. Uh, and, and so there'll be more and more money pumped into that. And, and we're going to see more commodification of it that we're already allowed to train, sorry, to fine tune deep learned models on iPhones and iPads. We're not allowed to train them yet directly on the GPU of the device, but that will happen soon enough. Um, so Mario Klingerman's next piece of art will be a, uh, an iPhone installation which adapts to your surroundings as the iPhone user. You can see that happening. Well, we're going to see we're going to see iPhones um, overheating because of all the GPU intensive usage and battery I life shrinking. As an issue, you know, how the, well, we actually on a previous podcast, hmm. um, I, I mentioned this point entirely that um, it, it's it's a worry about energy consumption. That if we're training models on our phones during the night or live, then that will be massively increase the the environmental impact of deep learning. Teresa, any thoughts about the current state of creative AI? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit difficult because it feels like the year is like a pause on everything mm-hmm. in some way. And because of personal circumstances, we're moving to a new country, you know, settling down and all that, and plus the pandemic, the lockdowns. It, yeah, and, and what Nina said as well, like the news fed, maybe not getting the right information, not being able to attend, for instance, as I said before, uh, in the conference because of the time it was at night it's just difficult uh then then yeah it feels like it's a pause i have uh, i have to actually with our colleagues about this year being like a a ghost year and mm. we will be we will be like restarting uh, hopefully next year so yeah yeah Mm, maybe it just doesn't have a very good effect like through because i mean if we're going to experience you know creative AI artworks you basically have to do it through your laptop and i mean yeah. i have no desire to just even all of the on i mean most art not all of it but especially creative AI, you don't have any desire to go on the virtual exhibition and go on the you know browser and read about it and check it out. It's just, it's less interesting. So I think that kind of, it just kills a little bit of the, mm. the interest there. The magic, yeah. 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 And I think, well, the one thing that's sort of had to go virtual has been live performance. So musicians doing live streaming, which has been kind of popular, I guess, for some people. It's no substitute for actual being in a live performance and seeing someone play. Mm. So... And the improvising yeah. as well, right? Yeah, and the, the whole connection between the the musicians and the audience is just not quite the same when you're just doing it in front of a, a phone or a camera. Even if you're seeing all the little hearts move up on the stream and people saying love it and <laughs> everything, I don't know if it's really the same vibe as if you're in a pub, a steamy pub or a concert hall or whatever, and there's an audience there who's kind of listening intently to what you're doing. So but can't, can't we emphasise the positive? I, I know you saw Alan and Mark... Uh, Dinverno jamming together because yes. uh, you post on yeah. Twitter. Uh, you know, that wouldn't happen if there was a pandemic or not. That was never going to happen without technology. Um, and so maybe the fact that we're all locked into our homes means that there'll be a flourishing of that kind of collaboration. It's possible. I mean, there's, there's certain facts of physics that I think just, you know, make it hard, like the speed of light. It does take time for that to, you know, or even, you know, network speeds and that kind of thing make it very difficult, in, particularly in music where timing is kind of really important. But, but that, that, anyway. I see that as a challenge, though. I mean, there was a project in Falmouth University when I was there called the Online Orchestra. And the, it, Cornwall, where that is based, is very isolated. People are very isolated. So getting an orchestra together in Cornwall was very difficult because people have to travel for hours to get there. So they had a virtual one and they and they took advantage, well, not took advantage, they, they cleverly catered for latency. Less latency than from the UK to Australia than one, one part of Cornwall to another, but they kind of used it creatively. 
So maybe latency is just another, you know, creative problem to be solved. I think that'll be the challenge for 2021. All right. I think we've run out of time, but thanks everyone for the interesting discussion and tune in sometime in the future for the next Sensi Lab Creative AI podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, thanks guys. Thank you.